Hello and welcome to the Film Pulse Podcast. This is episode number 377. My name is Adam Patterson. With me today, we've got Kevin Rickstraw. Hey, Kevin. Hey, how's it going? Uh, it's going all right. Um, if I sound a little bit weird this week, it's because I'm coming at you live from the hotel room. Because the these, these, these storms, yeah, these storms that are rolling in, I had to get out of the house, go to a hotel. So I apologize for any lack of quality that my uh, mic is giving off i have this really weird setup going <laughs> so but i had to we had to get this done we had to do it had yeah, to do the man. podcast gotta do it this week on the show we're gonna begin our fantasia festival coverage by bringing you four that's right four reviews for movies screening at montreal's genre film festival including lapsus class action park Crazy Samurai Musashi, and You Cannot Kill David Arquette. Of course, we'll also be going over this week's new releases on VOD and Blu-ray as well. Uh, If you have a moment, please consider reviewing us on iTunes. That would be really helpful. Uh, Now, regarding the Fantasia Festival, if you're not familiar, this is a huge genre film festival that happens every year in Montreal. This year, they're doing it virtually. So... If you're if you're a Canadian resident and you want to check out any of the movies that we talk about, go to fantasiafestival.com and check check the the listings. Uh, some of them are on demand, so you can watch them anytime during the festival, and some of them are live screenings that you have that you only have like a specific time that you can watch them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh the the live uh, the festivals being done through Festival Scope, so the platform is actually quite good. I did watch one of the live screenings and uh, I had no no issues with it whatsoever. So again, if you're a Canadian resident, it is geo-locked to Canada, unfortunately. But if you're there, be sure to check it out. Uh, it's one of my favorite festivals. So I'm always really excited when I get a chance to uh, cover cover this festival. Next week, we're going to continue our coverage and talk about a whole bunch more on the podcast. So there's going to be a part two to this to this series. And then also there's going to be a ton of written reviews on the site as well. Uh, I'm sort of timing those written reviews to start after we kick things off with this podcast. So expect to see them start to pop up on Tuesday uh, when this podcast drops in the morning. Gotcha. With that, I think we can dive into our first review. Uh, I think we can probably just go in order in which I mentioned them here and start with Lapsus. What do you think? Let's do it. Uh, This is directed by Noah Hutton. In a parallel present, delivery man Ray Tinselli is struggling to support himself and his ailing younger brother. After a series of two-bit hustles and unsuccessful swindles, Ray takes a job in a strange new realm of the gig economy trekking deep into the forest, pulling cable over miles of terrain to connect to large metal cubes that link together the new quantum trading market. As he gets pulled deeper into the zone, he encounters growing hostility and the threat of robot cablers and must choose to either help his fellow workers or to get rich and get out. Now, question also. That, that, yeah, that sounds like a lot. That sounds like a lot is going on in this movie. And I think it's a li- it's a little bit more simpler than that. I mean, th- that yeah. is what happens, but the synopsis makes it sound almost inaccessible, like really hard to sort of parse what's happening in this movie. And I, I don't think it's quite like that. First off, I'll say that I really, really enjoyed Lapsus. In fact, so far, this is one of my favorite movies of the festival. I loved the world building in this this is like it says in the synopsis it's a parallel present so it takes place now but there's just certain certain little things that that have it tweaked from what we know today and so in that in that regard it's not like a really crazy you know flying cars sci-fi type movie it's it's very lo-fi and very grounded and I just had a blast with this with this movie. It for for whatever reason, it just really spoke to me. And I think that 
what it's representing this sort of damning critique of the gig economy i think that's like completely on point i feel Mm -hmm. like we've seen other other movies in recent years that attempt to make a statement on the gig economy and i feel like while some of some of the other ones may have proved their point i think that lapsus does it in such a a funny and poignant way that uh it's it's definitely one that's that's worth a look. Oh yeah, no doubt. And I think the the best part about this is, the, like you said, the the synopsis is a little bit misleading because it makes it sound far more complicated than what it really is. Because Lapsus, I mean, honestly, it's a pretty simple movie, and I think that that's what really works in terms of this like damning critique of of the gig economy, and ultimately it comes down to you know workers organizing is like the overall message of this movie. And I think it works so well because, A, it's not overly complicated. It's pretty straightforward. You can understand exactly how this whole, like, little economy, this you know, this, these gigs that worked out of it, the people running these routes of cable in the forest, and you get to pick the routes you get. Some you get more money, some you get less, and it depends on how long you've been doing it, that kind of thing. So it's all relatively simple. It's easy to understand, but yet it it really captures what's happening now, but just in a completely different way. Just with its own little made up world, and the world building is just outstanding. Yeah, I mean the the just the level of detail that goes into every aspect of how this this like profession works. So. To, to get into a little bit more detail about that, so you you have this new era of quantum computing where, I mean, quantum computing is like a real thing, but it's just not, we're not there yet. And in this reality, quantum computing becomes a real thing and everybody has these new quantum computers and you have to run the cables uh, to create this like trading network for them. And so to do that, they employ contractors to basically run the cables through like uh, uh, state parks and stuff. So this this one takes place in uh, I think it's the Allegheny State Park. If I'm, if I'm remembering that correctly, thank you. I think so, are you close? Either one. You have you go through this like orientation, and the funny thing is you have to get a medallion. In order to to do it, they call it a medallion, which I thought was kind of funny. And then you go through this like brief orientation and then like you're pretty much on your own. Like you you're responsible for your own equipment, like buying your own equipment. And then you have an app that syncs with your phone and this like GPS system. And it basically control even though you're on your own, it, it still controls like everything you do from when you take a break. Like it'll tell you when it's time to take a break to like replenishing your supply of cable and all of this stuff and just the level of detail in every little aspect of how this thing works like at the end of it you're just like yeah i mean it all makes sense it all mm-hmm. they, they they could deploy this thing in real life and it would all just like functionally work yeah and i think that's a big thing for this movie is one uh i like the way it's handled is i've never really had a question about how it works it was never like too complicated for me like it all made complete sense and like you said i could see this functioning pretty much exactly the way it functions in the movie like it completely makes real world sense but it's all very logical and the way that it's explained like the the information is given to you you know through the storytelling aspects of this is that it's never like overwhelming it's never like these huge information dumps, like the, you know, where it's just rapid fire giving you all this information and it's kind of difficult to, to take it all in and retain it. Like it does a really good job of just like naturally explaining things to you organically, you know, just that like stuff comes up like in the natural process of him, you know, the main character, you know, starting his new job as a cable and you just kind of learn about everything pretty much every aspect because i never there really wasn't a point where i was like okay this doesn't really make sense or have a lot of questions you know it just it 
it all made sense to me. It was all very logical. Yeah, the the way that they parse out information as far as like how it all f- works uh, is very smartly done. So like one of the first, like a, a good example of this is when he first starts out and he gets his first spool of cable, my, my initial question was like, that doesn't look like a lot of cable. Like what happens when he runs out of cable? And they very quickly address that where he does run out of cable and then they show how what happens and how how you get more cable and how the like spool connects to the end of the the other the other one and it's just like oh okay there it is like pretty much every question i had on the logistics of how this worked ha- was answered uh, almost immediately like as soon as the thought popped into my head i was just like okay there we go like the same with like the little robotic cablers too so like that's a big part of this. So you have this guy who, by the way, if they ever make a James Gandolfini biopic, you you gotta you it gotta has hire to be him. him. It has to be him. You, you gotta bring on Dean Imperial because this guy is like the spitting image of James Gandolfini, and I don't mean that in just like looks. I mean just mannerisms, tone of voice, and also there's this like kind of gruff sweetness about mm-hmm. him like he's like kind of this big teddy bear character and you immediately form this bond with him like you want to see him succeed like you want to see him get through this he's it's sort of an underdog story in a lot of ways where you know he's he's an out of shape middle-aged guy he's not used to that kind of work and doing this cabling stuff involves you wandering through the wilderness, dragging cable for days and he's doing it so that he can uh, get his brother treatment for this omnia that he has this mysterious disease that I guess inflicts people. Yeah. Like every, every, every little, every little piece gets answered immediately and and it's just, uh, it's all put together so, so well. And it's, it's funny. There's there's a lot of humor in it, but I think that the the sort of social commentary aspect of it is really on point as well. It's not overt. It's not in your face, but it, it lays it all out very very plainly. And it also has that that through line of <clears throat> what the who, who the hell is Lapsus? Like he so he needs to get a medallion, and he's he's trying to make money fast because he's trying to get his brother into this treatment facility and. So he goes through maybe some back channels. There's this guy that he knows who works with the cablers and can obtain a medallion for him like really quickly. So he goes through and gets the medallion and he finds like at the beginning, when you first start your route, you scan your GPS thing and it pops up with your like profile. And his name is Lapsus Beef Tech, which I think is the funniest name (laughs) ever. And he finds out that like people named themselves, like they, everybody has their own trail name, but he didn't create his own trail name. And then there's this like sort of outpost where you can rest and eat and buy supplies if you need to. And he finds that he has all these credits on his account that just were kind of there. And so he's, immediately is like well somebody else had this medallion before me i I have somebody else's account but he doesn't know who it was and when people start learning of his trail name they start giving him like the cold shoulder and they start you know treating him like crap and so there's a lot more to the story as it unfolds and i mean that was one of the big things for me was i never knew where this movie was going like i was just constantly like where is this going next where what's happening here and i was just like just so on board the whole time i was like i'm just along for this ride and it can keep going i was just so entertained by it i mean in terms of like lo-fi yeah this is one of the better ones of the last couple of years this was really a surprise to me i would put it up there with like safety not guaranteed or even primer like it's it's a little bit more i would say i don't want to say high budget than primer but like there's there's more going on like there's actual effects work and stuff in this it's not like completely stripped down like you they like the robots and stuff have they have like actual 
devices and things in this. Uh, and, and I think that all of that stuff goes along really well with the world building, like the little robot drone things. So they're constantly competing with these robots. And if the, one of the robots overtakes them on their route, they lose the route to the robot. All that might, that's the thing is it feels like Noah Hutton thought about everything. Yeah. Every, every, every little detail, every little detail was thought out. And I, I just, was just really impressed with it. I didn't really know what to think going into it. I had no idea what to expect. And I, I came away just really. And I think that it's not just the world building and all of the the little minutia of this, of this movie that really sold me. I think it was the strong characters too. I mean, oh, yeah. Dean, Dean Imperial, he, Dean Imperial was amazing in this. And then you have uh, all, all of the, the secondary characters and stuff were, pretty incredible too yeah oh no definitely you kind of figure out you know the the intriguing aspect of the how all of this works with the quantum computing running the cable and the you know the the drones and the underdog story of like a bunch of uh exploited workers organizing to fight back against the cabling companies which how do you not get home they got fucking cables all over the place. There's just cables. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, like mile, miles, miles of cables just ruining our our national parks with giant black cables. Yeah, which you could easily see happening. Easily. One one thing that I thought was interesting. I don't. Maybe this is something that actually exists in real life, but they. It's just a small thing, but they have. There's another app that allows you to rent out your garage to other people. And it like you, you go in and you can like scan the garage and it'll open and you can sort of store stuff in there for a fee. And I thought to myself, that seems so real that I would be Mm -hmm. surprised if that didn't already exist. I know. I know. And I just, I love the fact that Dean Imperial is, you know, he's a middle-aged man. He's not really up on tech. So, like, as this stuff is happening, you can just tell that he's like, what the fuck? Like, why would you do this? <laughs> he's just in constant shock. And, and the scene when he goes to the little garage thing and they're like, oh, yeah, ch- a charging is not included in this one. And he's just like, uh, all right. Uh, it's It's crazy. I'm, I'm I'm telling you right now, if if that's not a service that already exists, and it very well might, I I, I totally know. foresee that as being something. One time, I I rented a car from someone, like using this app called Turo, where you can like rent out your own car to what? people. Yeah, yeah. When when I uh, we were on a trip and I wanted to drive a, a Tesla, I've never driven a Tesla, so you uh, you. I went on this app called Turo and found a Tesla owner in the area and booked it through them and went to the the dude's house and just picked up his car. It's, it's so weird. Yeah, that's just so weird and dumb. Strange world we live in. And I think that this movie perfectly represents that strange yeah. world. So Yes, it does. Uh, Lapsus is definitely one to check out. It's uh, I- I'm hoping that it gets picked up. I-, I definitely think it will. I think that there there's enough here for it to to get picked up by maybe a small distributor and uh, get released soon. So hopefully you'll be able to see Lapsus soon. If you're available to see it at Fantasia, definitely don't sleep on it because it's it's a highlight for me for sure. Yeah. And I completely agree. And start putting uh, Dean Imperial in more things. Uh, moving on to our next movie, let's talk about Class Action Park. This is a documentary directed by Seth Borges and Chris Charles Scott III. I have a synopsis here. Discover the legacy of Action Park, a very real amusement park that used to exist that has something of a legendary story. Not only because the park was wild and far less structured than something like Disneyland, but because many people were seriously injured and some even died. While it sounds made up, this place was very real. Now, I actually talked about Action Park previously on this 
show, I'm pretty sure, that talked about Action Park. I don't I don't know if it was on the air, maybe off the air, but I know I talked to you about it before. I feel like you were talking about it like numerous, numerous times. I know. Because when you told me like this documentary, I'm like the only thing I could think of was like, God, another one? I feel like we've talked about Action Park so many times that this is like the second documentary. Yep, yep. Uh, I'm a bit of an action park connoisseur. I I love the story of action park because it's just so ridiculous and it's just so 80s and uh, I'm I'm just all about action park. But looking at this feature length, this is the first feature length documentary about the park. Uh, We'll start this one with you, Kevin. What were your initial impressions of Class Action Park? You've talked about park so many times, right? That I kind of know enough about action park that this this uh, documentary was a little bit redundant like so i think it really works for people that might not have that much uh knowledge of the park i mean you do get some like more background with the owner and, and like how it all came about his finances and everything so i did appreciate that aspect of it but to me it unfortunately it was just a it wasn't enough for me. You know, it wasn't in depth enough. It just, it kind of felt like a, like a VH1 episode. Cause I mean, the majority of this is just talking to Chris Gerhardt. We just, yeah. <laughs> just felt kind of weird. And especially considering it seems like he only went to action park once. Yeah. <laughs> Which, I don't like, he's an entertaining guy, but it seemed like we could talk to more people. I, yeah, I, I found I, I felt the same way. I thought that first of all, Chris Gerhardt is very funny in this. Like he he is definitely one of the funniest parts of this this movie, and I, I appreciated that they did interview him. But as th- this, you run into this issue anytime there's a documentary that you watch where you already know a lot about the subject matter. And yeah, for me, I, there wasn't a lot here that I didn't already know about Action Park. I was kind of hoping that I'd be able to see more footage from the park. And unfortunately, it seems like maybe there isn't that much of when, you know, when the park was in its heyday. Yeah. The So, like, it, they kind of reused the same footage many times over. And I don't know. That, that was a little bit of a bummer for me, too. I think that if you're not familiar with Action Park you'll find this documentary to be very entertaining because it is a crazy story. It's this place is completely wild. If you're not familiar, it's this uh, amusement park in New Jersey and it is notorious for how many people were injured and even died on the various attractions there. And I mean, when you look at some of them, you're just like, well, (laughs) Yeah, you're you people are going to get hurt on that. And in, I mean, honestly, it's surprising that more people did not die. Like, you know, when they're like, "Oh, two people died in the wave pool," and you see the wave pool, and you're like, "Wow, only two people died in that." Yeah, I, I would have guessed a lot more, and especially the like the what was it, the Alpine, where it's just oh, like alpine concrete slide, track man. and rocks. Like, yeah, did, concrete track and rocks. Like someone should have been dying every day, I think. Well, I also love the the anecdote with the Alpine slide where so the Alpine slide is basically just this concrete sort of luge that goes down a really steep hill. It's a twenty seven hundred foot incline. And you ride these like sled things that have wheels on them, and there's a brake. So like you control the speed, which is one of the problems. The other thing is, like, apparently these things would always break and weren't functioning properly, but they never bothered to fix them. And then the other thing is that they take you on a ski lift up to the top. And when you're on the ski lift, there's just this hook that the the sleds go on on the side. And what people would do (laughs) would be they would knock the sleds off. And they would fall onto people who were going down the slide underneath of them, which seems 
so dangerous. Yes. 100%. And unfortunately, there there was there was someone who was killed on the Alpine slide. Uh, in fact, six people died at the park total. And people, two people drowned in the wading pool. There was a there's a kayak ride, and someone was electrocuted on the kayak ride. Yeah, uh, they, which there is was just insane that there's yeah. not a ground wire in a water park. There's this Tarzan swing that they have, which is just a rope swing that goes over this like spring, this natural spring that's there, and uh, someone went off the Tarzan rope and the water was so cold he actually had a heart attack when he hit the water so uh yeah multiple multiple casualties the one thing that i did appreciate about the documentary is that it was like it kept things very light very fun you know talking about all the various injuries that they've seen there and stuff and just how the park worked and the history behind it and all of that and how, how, like, it was basically teenagers running this park, and there was just no rules, there's no liability, no nothing. And then th- then once they started getting into the people who were killed, they did bring it down and, and got serious with the film, and I appreciated that. I thought that they did a, a decent job of not making light of the fact that people were actually killed here. Yeah, but I don't I don't know if they did a good enough job because it's it's pretty quick at the end. Like they focus on one person. It yeah. takes up a very small portion of the movie. And then the thing that's the follow up after that is all the, you know, like what was Allison Becker and Chris Gerhardt and them essentially being like, Yeah, you know, it was a rite of passage to get injured there and you know, this is Jersey. You don't like it, fuck you. And it's like, that seemed like an odd choice after, you know, talking to the family that had a person die there. Their son died. <laughs> and that's how you end it. Well, I think what they were trying to do was wrap up this this park as a symbol of, like, a bygone era. Like, this, this is a park that is designed for a generation of latchkey kids in the 80s that you know, left their parents' house and did whatever the hell they wanted, you know, and it's just not something that we see anymore. And it was very sort of a a representation of the time, of the era. And so they were trying to, I think, use Action Park as like a symbol of of a generation. And I appreciate that, but but I, I totally agree with you, though, like that they had this very somber moment and they were talking to the family of this boy who was killed at the park. And then they, you know, put, put their, their final notes on it. Like the whole fuck you. I'm from New Jersey thing. And yeah, it, it's not, it's not the best uh, way to wrap things up, but I can't really think of a, a better way for them to handle that either. <laughs> Not the fuck you. Maybe just like that, <laughs> you know. Like, because I I do appreciate the point of like the like you said is like this is like Action Park could only exist in the eighties because of the way things were, where you know kids left the house and then they were just gone all day, and your parents were never worried, really, and then you would just show up at some point. And that's what you did every day in the summer. And you knew what type of adventures you were getting into. Yeah. You and I you and I went on a lot of crazy adventures as a youth. Oh yeah. yeah. We I mean we, we weren't we we weren't growing up in the eighties, but in the nineties there was still plenty of that going on. Oh yeah. You just find a creek and just walk the creek for like five hours. Yeah. Train anyway. track old train tracks. <laughs> six towns over roaming the streets of d-town yeah it works if you don't it it works i mean it's a good documentary for people that that don't really that might not know that much about action park or you know they're nostalgic for action park one thing that i think was a little bit of a missed opportunity is the animation in this so like i said there's a lot of a lot of footage that just doesn't exist. And when they're a lot of the movie is them talking about 
each specific ride and how dangerous the ride was and all the various injuries that occurred on the ride. And they do that through this very crudely drawn animation. And I feel Mm -hmm. like it's just a missed opportunity because the whole movie has this like 80s aesthetic to it. They could have used like this kind of 80s Saturday morning cartoon look or something like that, you know, to, to sort of match the 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 vibe you know match try to match the style of those action park those really great action park commercials that they include but it's they don't do that it's just this like really generic poorly drawn animation that just doesn't fit no i wasn't feeling the the animation there's also it's not I, i don't know if i'd necessarily call it a comprehensive documentary either because there's a lot of rides and stuff that were part of action park that they didn't cover that were just as dangerous as the uh, cannonball loop which you know that's like the most notorious one so the cannonball loop is this crazy water slide that has a full vertical loop at the bottom which when you look at it you're just like how does that work uh spoiler doesn't doesn't work no not at all but they had a at one at one point they had a skate park they built a skate park in there but of course you know like everything with action park there was there was like no engineering involved with it at all and apparently all of the like all of the the lips and transitions and stuff were uneven so everyone there were so many injuries within the first week of the skate park opening that they buried it under underground and never spoke about it again as if it never existed Well, I'm glad to extend it to the, to the documentary, action, uh, Class Action Park. It wasn't even mentioned in there. So it worked. Uh, all right, that's Class Action Park. That's actually going to be on HBO uh, in the near future. I'm not sure if it has a release date just yet, but keep an eye out because that'll be on HBO and HBO Max coming soon. Uh, all right, what do we have next here? Crazy Samurai Musashi. This is directed by Yuji Shimomura. I have a synopsis here. This film, taken around the time of Out and Deluxe, consists of the most famous battle of the swordsman Miyamoto Musashi. In this 77-minute, one-scene, no-cut action sequence, Miyamoto, Tak Sakaguchi, defeats 588 enemies, one after the other. There is no room for error, no room for corny or unconvincing moves. And I think that that synopsis, while does contain some bits that I have no idea what they mean uh pretty much does sum up this movie it is literally except for one part in the beginning and one part at the end a 77 minute no cut fight sequence which is something that uh, i've never seen before in a movie so it definitely has that uh that interest level built in you know because obviously there's a party it's like well how's that work i'm gonna i have to watch that I have to see how that plays out. That many fighters, that many samurai swords. Come on. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that the the gimmick is sort of goes against. It, it sort of fights against this movie at every step of the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's insanely impressive. Let, I'll, I'll preface my thoughts by saying that this movie is insanely impressive to see. Uh, Tak Sakaguchi, who is like pushing fifty at this point. He's, he's like mid-40s, maybe. Uh, to see him fighting 400-plus dudes, just one after the other after the other, sometimes more than one at once, just nonstop for that amount of time, it's insanely impressive. Like, And not only, not only his performance, but I think uh, a, a huge amount of credit goes to the, the people, the crew behind the camera shooting this. Uh, the way that the camera moves and gets in on the action and it's just perfectly choreographed to what's happening around it. And they do some really cool camera stuff in here. Uh, now, it should also be noted that this is a true single take movie. There are no hidden cuts or anything like that. It's like, it's the real deal. That being said, uh, they had to make some concessions, I think, in order to shoot it like this. And because of that, I feel like there's this level of unpolished visuals with it that unfortunately, I think, work against 
the overall movie. Yeah, but it does take you it does take you out of it at times because that that uh, that handheld camera gets pretty shaky at times. Where you're just like, oh, okay. they're having trouble with the with the camera. It does. I think sometimes it works in its favor. Like there's one scene where he just like slashes this dude and sends him flying, and the guy actually falls into the camera. And so I, I think that sometimes it actually works in its favor. Yeah. But I, but I agree. Other times you're just like, whoa, it, it feels really it's it's almost jarring because it looks like they shot this on some kind of action camera, like a GoPro or something. So it doesn't look very aesthetically pleasing. And the setting, it, it looks like this just really basic sort of bland yeah. village. Not very a lot generic. going on visually. Yeah, very generic. And then because of how they shot it. And because of the fact that this is all done in real time, you can't add, I mean, you can, but they didn't add very many effects and stuff like that to sort of hide the fact that he's pretending to slash and stab people. So a lot of what you have is Tak Sakaguchi like bonking people on the head with a sword. A lot of, a lot of head bonking happening in this movie. And then, (laughs) you know, him gut slashing people, but because the camera's like moving around, you can see everything. It's like clear that he's not actually <laughs> slashing yeah. anybody. So it definitely takes you out of it. I think a lot. Now, sometimes they, they sort of mix up. And also, I mean, I think the big thing here is that it's largely just the same scene over and over again. Group of dudes come in one at a time. They go after him. He bonks him on the head or slashes him in the gut, moves on to the next group. So yeah. there's very little, there's very little <laughs> variation. It's very redundant. Yeah. It, and, it it, just, and after it, a while it becomes a slog. Yeah. It, it's very problematic. Cause you're just like, all right, let's just come on now. But then sometimes he'll, he'll encounter like a mini boss. Like he'll, somebody, somebody will come and you'll be like, uh Oh, this guy looks different. He looks different than the f- last 150 peons that he fought. Like, you know, it's a, it's a bigger dude or he's wearing a different outfit or he has a different weapon. And you're just like, oh, shit, here we go. And then he'll, like, kill the dude in 10 seconds. You're just like, oh, all right, <laughs> there we go. But I will say that some of the little, like, mini boss fights were at least somewhat of a nice reprieve from the, the, the just wave after wave of generic soldier. Well, I think that's the biggest thing here that makes it really, really difficult is that so many of the challenges clan that are trying to kill him i mean they're just all completely woefully in it and the worst part is it just kind of cycles through these same things like there's the, the head bonking he'll do you know he'll just kind of a little flick of the wrist to snap a guy on the, the periphery and that takes care of him or you know that's everything like where like the worst thing is the first time it happened it was kind of ridiculous is where there's like five guys rush them, right? One after another. Their swords behind their back, like up, arms over their head, just rush at them. Don't even attempt to like try and hit them. And he just slashes, you know, right through their, their midsection. And mm-hmm. he gets rid of, he gets rid of five people in like two seconds. And you're like, okay, that makes sense. You have to, you know, kind of rush this body count along. But then they end up doing that like, five, six times throughout the movie. It just becomes so boring, really. Which is really, I mean, there's the great physical performances here, but they kind of just do the same thing over and over again. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it almost feels like an experimental movie, like just something that they wanted to try, just something that they wanted to see if they could do. And they mm-hmm. didn't seem to be too concerned with like the actual entertainment value of the, yeah. the movie itself. The thing that makes it a little bit more difficult and a little bit more heartbreaking is the fact that this movie's bookended by just a regular action film where it's like, you know, cuts. There's cuts. We're not doing anything overly ambitious here. We're just making a samurai movie, and especially the very end fight scene where it has these quick, exciting uh, yeah. cuts. You know, it's yeah, just I was like, gonna, I was, here's what it could have been. 
Exactly. I was definitely going to touch on that. And in, in my written review, I said I said that as much where it's when you see that final fight sequence at the very end when they they pull away from the single take thing and it's just a regular fight. That fight is so badass that you can't help but feel like, man, I wish the whole movie was like that. And, <laughs> like I could have had that <laughs> instead. Yeah. Yeah. Like. Like make a sequ- I, I would love for them to make a sequel and just have, make it like regular, like have Sekiguchi playing the same character, playing uh, Musashi, and just make it like a regular movie where he's just he can he can mow down hundreds of people. That's fine, but shoot it traditionally. Like have cuts in there, add add cool effects and stuff, and you know, redo, redo portions of it to get it just right with the choreography. And that's the other thing is like, they play it somewhat safe with the choreography too. Like there are certainly, there's certainly flourishes in here that are really impressive, but they don't, they don't do anything like super wild in terms of choreography because then obviously they'd have to redo everything all over again. (laughs) Yeah. And that would suck. No, it's just a lot of head bonk. Yeah. Uh, one of the one of the things I did appreciate was the fact that they worked in the water breaks where they where they would give him water breaks during during the thing during the fight, which apparently like that was something that he like actually did. Like he would go in beforehand and set up stuff before a fight. That way that he had it like during the fight. Yeah, I think um, if you're familiar with. The legend of Miyamoto Musashi. He was the one of the most legendary um, fighters in all of Japan. He was undefeated. He never lost a fight, and he was just this master swordsman. And he actually developed this dual sword technique, which is funny because you barely see it now. Maybe yeah, he doesn't do. I guess I, I don't know, like what the timeline is. In, in this movie, like where he's at in his life. So it's possible that he didn't develop that technique until after this movie took place. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure, but he barely, there's a couple scenes where he dual wields the swords, but for the most part, like I remember the first time he picks up two swords and I'm like, Oh shit, here we go. He's going to dual wield these swords and just <laughs> mess everybody up. And then he, and then he drops it. <laughs> You're just like, yeah. what? Or, the, or my favorite is when he just throws it. There's a, like, yeah. a spear, and it does hit the one guy, and they do a little CGI blood thing. I'm just like, oh, come on. That was so dumb. Yeah, that was the other thing is, like, because of just the nature of how it was shot, they had to – all the blood, which there actually isn't that much, is it's all done in CG except for one scene when they, I think, very cleverly hit a blood pack on a pillar. There's, like, a yeah. piece fighting in this, like, barn, and – it's like during one of the mini boss fights and I think he like grabs a blood pack that was like taped to the side of a pillar or something. But yeah. yeah. And that was, that was the other thing that the CGI blood was wildly inconsistent. Like 50% right. of the people that got slashed didn't bleed. And then the other 40% yeah. did. And you're just like, oh, this doesn't, I, I don't understand what's going on. This is weird. Yeah. I think, I think it works well as an experiment i think that the the technical on a technical level it's impressive but if you're looking for like a just a crazy wild martial arts action movie that features you know one guy killing 400 plus people i think i think you'll find it to be actually pretty dull yeah i mean the most impressive thing here to me is sakaguchi's the the physical performance that he's putting on display here like the mm-hmm. just the stamina that he shows right yeah I, I think that that's like what makes it worth worth looking at yeah let's move on and talk about our final movie this week and remember that we'll be back next week with at least four more there might even be more who knows we're, we're know. cranking them out uh, you cannot kill David Arquette is our final film this week Directed by David Darg and and Price James. I have a synopsis here. Following his infamous championship as part of a marketing stunt for the film Ready to Rumble, 
David Arquette is widely known as the most hated man in pro wrestling worldwide. Nearly 20 years after he quote-unquote won the initial title through ups and downs in his career with his family and with his struggles with addiction, David Arquette seeks redemption by returning to the ring for real this time. Now, uh, Kevin, what's your familiarity with David Arquette? Did you like David Arquette? I can't imagine you you did or maybe you didn't really have an opinion on the man before going into this. Yeah, I don't really have an opinion on the guy. I don't think I've really seen him in that many things. Outside of screen, you know, I think most of the things that I've seen him in, he's probably playing, you know, a small, a small side character, that type of deal. Mm-hmm. But I don't have a, an opinion of David Arquette either way. Yeah, I can say the same thing. I didn't really have too much of an opinion on David Arquette one way or the other. I didn't know too much about him or his personal life or anything like that going into it. I s- vaguely remembered the whole Ready to Rumble thing. Like, I remembered the movie, but I also remembered the whole. WCW uh, title I, I rem- thing. I remember them doing that as like a tie-in or like, you know, trying to drum up interest for them. I didn't know that they gave him the title. Like that just seemed like a yeah. really stupid thing to do. Why? <laughs> yeah. Why should he do that? Well, according to what they said in the documentary, he wasn't really on board with the whole idea either because David Arquette is actually a huge wrestling fan in real life. And... Uh, I think when the the opportunity arose for him to do this WCW thing, I think he jumped on it. But then when he realized, like, we're going to give him, we're going to give you the title, he was like, uh, I don't know if that's a good idea. But then he went along with it. And uh, according to him, and this is something that I would say is suspect, is he, he essentially blames that event for contributing to, to ruining his career. Yeah, but that was As already going downhill. You're doing yeah, ready to I mean, rumble, dude. Come on. And see, that's the thing. Like, first, first of all, uh, I, I do think that David Arquette is a sympathetic character. Like, I, I think that a lot of people don't like him. I think that a lot of people find his personality to be a little, a little bit too much and a little bit grating. And I can I can totally understand that because I used to feel the same way after this documentary, though, I, I think that it does show him as a sympathetic character. And, but as far as like his career and stuff, there there's always this sort of thing in the back of my mind where I'm, I'm thinking like, dude, you had a really good career. Like, yeah, this shitty thing happened to you with the WCW and a lot of people got mad at you and like talked shit and, and like trolled you and stuff. But you you have like a, a a wonderful family you have a lovely home you had a really solid career in hollywood i mean a lot of struggling actors would probably kill to have the kind of career that you had so there's like a part of me that's like just be happy with what you what you have but i also understand that he this is a guy who struggles with like mental health issues and addiction issues and like being a washed up actor probably does not help with those things yeah and i think that was one of the things that surprised me the most is his house and everything i just like i'd never thought of david arquette as being like super successful so i was kind of surprised like when they showed you know what he has and I was like, oh, you have it, like, really good, actually. Like, like I can understand, like, kind of being disappointed in your career, but at the same time, it's like, wow, you actually did a lot better than I thought. Yeah, and, like, that's the thing. Like, he he had a really promising career early on, and then he did, like, the Scream movies, and I'm sure that that's, like, the house and all of that stuff is probably Scream money. He did four Scream movies, and those were all, like, yeah. really big studio films. And so, uh, and also he says like, oh, he's been auditioning for like 10 years or something and he hasn't, but if you look at his IMDb, he's had plenty of roles. Like he's been, I mean, yeah, they're like not leading man roles or anything, but in fact, uh, he's in a movie called 12 hour shift that's playing at Fantasia festival and he's really good in it. So it's, 
it's it's a little weird to me that he's like saying that he hasn't had work and all this time and stuff but it looks like he at least i mean at least according to his imdb it looks like he has done you know small well, parts in movies and tv and stuff and i think that's the thing is i think he's looking probably more so for like studio things but yeah, yeah all, these, meteor, all meteor he's really stuff. able to get is indies now but and that was just that was my worry with this movie at the start is because he you know he kind of blames the the wrestling thing on his stalled career which again like you i'm like i don't know dude like i thought you were kind of going downhill before that even happened like you were in the movie before the wrestling stuff happened like that movie should have told you where things were headed and he's like oh i want to get back into wrestling and you see the guy you see how out of shape he is and he's just not in good health and you're like okay And he's, he's had a heart goes, attack at this yeah. point. And then he fucking goes to the Legends of Wrestling thing like two days before. He's like, hey, can I wrestle with you guys? And rightly so, they get fucking pissed off at him. Because you're just like, this yeah. fucking guy, are you kidding? <laughs> and then, but luckily he does get serious about it. But I was like, oh, this is going to be such a huge fucking vanity, vanity project. It's going to be so unbearable. But it was nice, like, once he started getting serious about it and, like, you know, he started getting in better shape. He's in really good shape. And, you know, he, he quit drinking and he wasn't doing you know, the drugs and everything. And it's like, oh, okay, this, uh, this is actually like really good for him in a, in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I feel like uh, there were a number of movies that I saw for Fantasia Fest this, this year that were kind of underdog stories. And I think that this applies in, in a lot of ways because, as you said, he had a heart attack. The dude's like, I think when this was shot, he was 46. And yeah, he's, he has, he's had no training, no, no training in wrestling at all. And I'm thinking, oh, what's he going to do? Like just hire some like four, $500 an hour wrestling trainer and, you know, take a few lessons and then get back in the ring, like using his, you know, pseudo celebrity to, to get him in back, back onto WC or WWE or whatever, wherever he does. But that's not really what happens. I mean, he, I think that he wants to completely immerse himself into wrestling culture. So, you know, what he does, he does that legends of wrestling thing. And he literally goes to a backyard wrestling match. That's like put on by like three, three dudes or whatever. And it's like the most brutal shit ever. And he just goes in the ring and gets his ass kicked and he's just demolished. And then he goes down to Mexico and wrestles with the luchadors down there. And I feel like he just, the way that he decides that he wants to get into wrestling is it was, it was entertaining. It was, but it was also smart where he wanted to start at the bottom and work his way up on his own. Yeah. And, and I feel like he he does use his celebrity to a certain degree, but that's unavoidable. Uh, I oh, think yeah. he did everything. I mean, he, the, he... the only reason he's able to do anything is because David Arquette. Because even he says, he's like, I'm not a good wrestler. He's like, I have a couple of moves, but like I'm not that good of a wrestler. And if he wasn't David Arquette, no one would be talking about him. Right, he would do that backyard wrestling thing, and then that's where it would stop. Like, he, yeah, he wouldn't he would stop. <laughs> he wouldn't progress past past the backyard wrestling thing. Uh, I mean, I was I was actually really impressed with his his like drive and his determination and his commitment to this because like he does train his ass off. As you said, he gives up drinking and smoking and. Uh, gets in shape and like he turns out to be pretty damn good in the ring like when after he does all the training and stuff and he starts taking on like more serious matches uh, I was really impressed with his moves actually yeah I mean he's all right I mean it's impressive for a 46 year old man right yeah that's what I mean it's like I mean I'm not that old I couldn't do any of that shit Right. I think I would hit Same that. Here. I think I would hit that floor once. I just be like, okay, I'm done for like a month. Yes, same here. And th- there's just the fact that he was so willing to put put his health, put his body on the line for this this 
action sport that he's like so passionate about. And then, I mean, I think that the one thing that we have to discuss is the setback that he has where he, he does this like hardcore match. I don't even know like what circuit that was, like what, where, where that was, but he, he gets his throat slashed. Like he, and they, they show the scene in the movie. And I was like, shocked at what what i saw like it's pretty intense yeah yeah no it is it's very bad and that's the that's the, the wrestling that i hate I, I i don't like anytime they get that stuff out i'm just like i i don't like like why i don't know it just doesn't make sense to me that how that's entertaining to people no i i much prefer the now i'm not a huge wrestling fan to begin with or at least not anymore but I prefer like the high flying, you know, the technique, like the the finesse, the yeah. the kicks and the flips and stuff like that. Like just the the theatrical aspect of it, rather than oh, let's just put two people in the ring and just see how much pain they can endure, or, like yeah. how much blood we can see. Like that that stuff doesn't really appeal to me. Like once yeah. you've seen it, once well, that's you're just the other thing. get it. It's like you hit a guy with the fluorescent tube. And it's like, okay, that was, I guess that's kind of cool. But then when you do it like a fourth and a fifth time, it's like, it's not entertaining to me. Like, I get it. It's a fluorescent tube that explodes. This just seems very, very, very dangerous. Like, you should not be doing this. And yeah. And what, what happened is, why. like, he, yeah, he, he gets hit with all these fluorescent tubes. And then he actually, I don't, I, I mean, I only saw it once, but it looked like he sort of stabbed himself with the tube. So one of the tubes I think was like still sort of sticking up and he does this like roll and he sort of rolled into it, the edge of it. And it like just stabbed him right in the jugular. And the craziest thing about it is like he leaves the ring. Cause he, he I think he like in, immediately realizes like, Oh, oh no, something just horrible. I'm going happened. to die. Yeah. Like this, this could, be the end of my life he leaves the ring then he comes back and finishes the match and then leaves again and uh actually luke perry takes him to the hospital yeah which so, i think i would it, i would make a little bit more uh yes this movie follows like the whole process of it and i think it does really work that way but there was a part of me that was like a little bit bummed out like i could have taken a little bit more like I would have liked to have heard his thoughts on everything that happened on that night. Because they don't really get into it at all. It's just like it happens. He's in the hospital. He comes out. And, you know, this is more about his journey, which I get. Yeah. But there was a part of me that's like, can someone just stop and ask him about that night? Like, what was going through his head? How does he feel about it now, years later? I was... was feeling the same way because not only so not only did this this horrible thing happen in the ring but luke perry passed away like very shortly after that occurred and that injury and combined with luke perry's passing i guess the two of them were like best friends caused him to relapse and yeah i I think i would have liked to got more input from him on on the whole incident and everything regarding that but I agree. Overall, I think that it is a really well-crafted documentary. I, I, I see David Arquette in a different light now. Now, it should be noted that his wife is a producer on this movie. So I don't think yeah. you should go in, into this looking at it as a, like, a, a thoughtful, objective um, examination of David Arquette as a person, as, you know, as uh, his character i think you should go into it more looking at it as his journey and where where he goes and the the dedication that he has to this sport i think that it does feel very honest i, I don't feel like anything is sugar-coated or anything like that but it is something to keep in mind going into it yeah yeah definitely and i did appreciate the the interviews with like his sisters, you have Patricia Arquette in there and Rosanna Arquette. And they interview Courtney Cox, too, who's his ex-wife. And because she, I think, 
I think they were married during the whole ready to rumble thing. Yeah. Very interesting. I, I, uh, I definitely, I, I can definitely recommend this movie. Yeah. I do as well. And I think that's what, that's what benefited is me not really knowing too much about David Arquette. Cause it would, I was kind of intrigued just from the outside. Like, yeah, what has David been up to? <laughs> oh, for the last five years he's been wrestling. Okay. That's why I haven't heard anything about him. Yeah. Yeah. It's been it's an odd choice to do in your late forties, but all right. I wonder if he's still, if he's still doing it. Like, I don't know. I don't know like what the updated thing I hope is. Not. Still... I hope not. Like just for the sake of his bones and joints. Just stop. Yeah. He gets, yeah. I mean, aside from the, the slit throat thing, like there's a lot of other stuff that happens to him in this movie. And he just gets really messed up. Yeah. And I mean, just from the outset of when he's like, you know, it's like, well, probably not a good idea. And I'm just like, Oh dude, no, you should not be doing any of this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Let's go ahead and give scores to all of the movies that we discussed today. Let's start with lapsus. Uh, I'm I'm very very high on this one. This is like an eight for me. I'm gonna give it an eight too. Uh, Class Action Park. Uh, what are you gonna give this one out of ten? Five and a half. All right, I'm uh, pretty much right there with you. I'll say uh, I'll say a six on Class Action Park. Uh, Crazy Samurai Musashi. Ah, this one's a tough one for me, just because there were a <laughs> lot of aspects I really liked, but like the overall. The overall film, I was just a little meh on. Like, I, I couldn't yeah. see myself being able to watch this again. Uh, so, I think maybe for me, this is like maybe like a five and a half, six on this one. Kind of what I'm thinking too, because that is a tough one. I mean, it's impressive in a lot of ways, but it's also extremely boring to watch. And then finally, you cannot kill David Arquette. What are you thinking on this one? I'm thinking like a six, six and a half. I'm sitting around uh, six and a half, seven on this one. Probably uh, probably seven. Uh, all right. That'll wrap up our first weeks of coverage of Fantasia Festival. Again, be sure to check the site daily for written reviews coming out for these four movies and plenty of uh, other ones that are going to be screening at this year's festival. And then tune in next week when we'll have part two where we're going to cover another handful of uh, movies screening there. So, yeah, very exciting. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's take a look at what we have coming out on VOD this week. On the 25th, we have Hard Kill starring Bruce Willis. Uh, we, we have Diary. That's the D-I-E-R-Y, Diary. Mm -hmm. We have... The Black Effect. This is a documentary. We have, and then on the 26th, we have uh, Lingua Franca. That's going to be on Netflix. That's an array release. Oh, yeah. Uh, we have Rising Phoenix. That's also going to be on Netflix. We have Driven to Abstraction. Uh, that's a documentary about abstract paintings. Oh, boy. Watch out. <laughs> Seems like right up your alley right there. Oh boy. Uh we have Entwined. That's gonna be a virtual theatrical release. Um we have The Faceless Man. This is also on the twenty eighth. That's a it's a horror movie. It's got a really creepy looking cover. Ooh. Ooh. I would imagine if he doesn't have a face. Yeah. But like the title is carved into his oh boy faceless face. Unbelievable. Uh, we have a big one here. Bill and Ted face the music. Hey, there you go. Pretty like, there's yeah. an actual big time movie there. I'm very very excited about that. Uh, we have the Garden Left Behind. That's going to be a virtual theatrical release as well. And we have Centigrade which I have a review for that up on the site right now, so you can read my full review on Centigrade. I wasn't a big fan of it. Uh -oh. On Blu-ray this week, 
We have Tales from the Dark Side, the movie from 1990. Uh, we just talked about this on the 90s podcast recently. It's it's pretty fun. A little fun horror anthology based on the hit TV show. We have The House by the Cemetery. That's going to be a 4K release. That's from 1981. The Beast Must Die from 1974. New York Ripper. That's a 4K release. That's from 1982. Big fan of that movie. You should check that out. Blue Blue Underground is releasing that. Hollywoodland from 2006. Remember that? Adrian Brody, Hollywoodland, Ben Affleck. Nope. It's no. the one where I, nope. where Affleck Affleck plays the Superman actor. All right, sure. We have the last victim from 1975, Deep Blue Sea Three is coming out. There's a third one. Yeah, this the third is, one. This is news to me. Yeah, same here. The King of Staten Island, this is the Judd Apatow one with Pete Davidson. It was okay. We have uh, Demonia from 1990. Uh, Fulci for Fake is coming out. That's the documentary about Lucio Fulci. It was okay. Kiki's Delivery Service from 1989 is coming out. That looks like it's going to be a steel book. Uh, as is Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind from 1984. Uh, Alias Redneck from 1973 is coming out. The comic from 1985 that's going to be on Arrow. Uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, the Trip to Greece is also coming out. If you haven't checked that out and you're a fan of that series, definitely worth a look. I think it's my favorite one in the in the series. Uh, what about Criterions? Oh, we got one. And that's Tony from 1935. Jean Renoir. Pick that bad boy up. All right. There you have it. Uh, I think that's going to do it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can send us your questions and topics to podcast at filmpulse.net. You can follow us on Twitter at filmpulse.net and at filmpulsekevin. And if you have a minute, please consider reviewing us on iTunes. That would be awesome. For Kevin Rakestraw, my name is Adam Patterson. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.